Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Anxiety Hour. It is Trent, and normally Mel opens this meeting up, but uh, for some reason we're having some technical difficulties, and it is after eight on Sunday night, so we thought we'd get in and um, get on with this absolute cracker of an episode. When I when I uh, met this uh, um, this this pretty awesome dude, uh, it was through networking and referrals through his partner and. Um, we got chatting and I knew there were some synchronicities. We had a good conversation and then he's like, yep, yep, I want to work inside of what you do. And I was fantastic. And boy, am I very grateful that uh, Aaron Young has uh, decided to come and, come and uh, learn inside of Team Resilience Group um, and be a value mark, uh, part of the community. Because uh, I didn't realize how big your story uh, was, Aaron. Uh, thank you very much for jumping on, mate. Uh, I'm very excited to have you on tonight and um, we just really need to get straight into it, I reckon. So welcome, mate. Thank you for jumping on. Thanks, Trent. Um, I appreciate the space to be able to, I think, finally get this, this story out in the, in the open. Part of, part of this, this learning experience is uh, perceiving my story very differently and I'm grateful that I'm surrounded by the community I am you guys to help me do that. Yeah, you're very humble and um, you've obviously been in that. I, I know that like uh, part of story ownership is owning not only the shit, but all the good as well. And, and uh, uh, I was probably similar to you before I started. I had all the shit that I perceived I did so bad and all this other stuff. And then when I realized, uh, when I realized specifically that I had no shame attached to it, when I started like finding the truth and all that was going on, that was a pretty, pretty awesome moment. So I really, in the last couple, I know in the last couple of weeks, it's been challenging for you. Um, because I know there's some stuff that you're potentially not that proud of or whatever it is, but it doesn't really matter. Like we're, we're here to, we're here to speak the truth. And I really hope we can inspire the level of truth that, um, coach Narelle was the other week. And I know that she's been, um, having all sorts of internal barometer issues since because it's, she's put, never shared that openly before. And we've been so inspired by her. And did you catch that interview? No, actually I didn't. And now you've just brought it up. I wish I had. But to be honest with you, I've just put this to the back of my mind and I'm trying to go in it very much without any thinking. I'd like the mind to switch off and I'd like, uh, I'd like a different part of me to lead the front in this story and just, you know, let it out. Awesome. Well, you know what, mate, let's just go straight there. What I'm going to do, mate, I'm going to put you front and center. Um, At any time, Mel could jump in. She's having technical issues, but I'm going to put you front and center, mate. And I just want you to start wherever you want to start, you go. And then whenever I've got a question, mate, I'll just pipe in. So, mate, it is very much over to you. Uh, Ladies (laughs) and gentlemen, this is Aaron. We're just going to let him flow. All right. Thanks, Trent. Um, All right. Where do we start, guys? Uh, I think we'll start at the end purely because I think that's where the most raw emotion is. Uh, I've shared a little bit on this and, and I'll go back to, to, the, to the point where we've got the little picture on tonight's broadcast, which is life after Zimbabwe prison. Um, I was imprisoned December 12th, 2018 without warning. I had a, a group of uh, uniformed gentlemen pitch up at my work and, basically jumped me, throw me in a car and dragged me off into some cells. I had no idea why. Um, as I moved through the first couple of days in and out of isolated torture cells and not so nice places with them trying to break my spirit and get me to leave the country by, uh, by choice, um, 
it started to become clearer to me that it had been linked to a job I'd held previously. So in that, that first two days, uh, I faced a new level of, of fear and I, I even will go as far today, I think, if I'm honest, of terror. <laughs> Funnily mm. enough, it had nothing, it had nothing to do with the violence. The, the physical violence was not new to me and I had no problem with that. Actually, if it sounds strange, I, you will it. You almost can handle it because you know what it is and you know what to prepare for. It's the mental side. It's where are my kids, uh, where am I, where is my family? What danger I've bought, have I brought into their lives? I've, I'm no communication being made. My phone was taken off me. No one knew where I was. Uh, so I just vanished into the system. And, you know, I'll be honest, I don't know if it's a little bit sad to say, but I was not concerned about my own welfare. I was concerned with that of my kids. Is, mm. is this a concerted attack on my family or just on me? Uh, you get to a point, you get to a place where the internal chatter will actually send you to breaking point. And I mean, literally, you will have a nervous breakdown and you can't show weakness. So what I was lucky is, is that I've lived a very colorful life and I've been on and off the spiritual journeys and paths, I think probably for about 25 years plus now, I started to have these tools pop into my head, you know, things I could and couldn't do to maintain my resolve, to maintain my dignity, and also to find some inner strength and fight back where I could. And I was just, I don't know whether you say lucky or you say blessed. I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I, I learned to meditate while being beaten. <laughs> mm. um, you know, being locked in a dark cell and not sure what's coming next. I learned to tap. And what I mean by that is just literally tapping arteries and stuff like that. that you know, mm -hmm. you can't. I, you know, you learn some weird and wonderful techniques that you've heard or you've watched a YouTube video of in, in, your, in your lifetime. And I just pulled those out as I needed. After two days, they realized they weren't going to break me. The last point was a guy coming in, two, well, three guys, two guys with a gun and a commanding officer saying, you're getting on a plane and you're leaving. And I said, like, fuck, you'll have to shoot me and put me in a box. I'm not leaving my children behind. At this point, they threw me into the system. And so I came back out into the daylight. And so I was just thrown into central in Harare and charged with fraud, uh, possession of illegal documents, overstaying a visa and a list of other charges. So at this point, I realised I'd sort of won part of my battle in that they, I was not going to get on a plane. I wasn't going to leave. Um, and then I was remanded to Harare Central Prison. So... Um, that in, that in itself, <laughs> you know, the way I see it, you know, you said humble. I, I'm not sure. I, I perceive the world very differently. I, I look back on my prison time and I wrote, I, I wrote a little bit about this. I don't, I've forgotten the negatives. I can tell you about the fear and the terror that initially overtook me and the worry for my kids and my family. But then it just became about, I saw everything as a challenge. You know, everything, every guard encounter, every attempt at abuse, every, every insult became a challenge. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know, again, if that's just the way I see and do things or... Uh, but, you know, moments came to me in that prison cell, like a feather floating through a window at one point. And I remember clinging onto that and saying that was my daughter making comments with me. You know, I, I went into that world, even though around me I was... I was in a six by 15 cell with about 75 guys, the sound and the smell is one that I can't, there's no way in words I can do it justice. But the, the you know, the previous what, 35, 40 years of my life had taught me 
I guess it, it wasn't just about me, you know, so I plugged into the prisoners around me and I started playing prison doctor and started playing prison solicitor and started being court advisor. And then we started working out. Then I started teaching the guards a little bit of close combat training and, you know, it just unraveled into something that you'd expect to almost see on the TV, but it just wasn't TV. It was real life. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so, so when you went in there, mate, you actually just, you, you really adapted really well by the sounds of it. Um, yeah, extremely well, very quickly. You don't, you don't have a choice. You're one white guy in a, in a, in an African prison. So when you walk in there, I'm not proud of the things I did initially. There was a fair bit of aggression and violence. I had to stamp some authority, but mm-hmm. once that was out of the way, um, it was a case of it's adapted. I'm going to say die. It's not that drastic, you know, but it's adapt very quickly or suffer the consequences. Mm-hmm. You know, I needed a blanket. I needed bed. I needed clean water. I needed to get some food. I'd eaten properly in two and a half by remand, almost two and a half, three days. So yeah, survival. Mm. Um, and, and a fair amount of, like I said, things I'm not proud of aggression and brutality, you know, you, you won and I'm not, look at me, I'm not a big guy. So you, you have to, uh, you have to make up for size with, with raw aggression. Mm. Um, we've obviously heard things in the, in, in becoming supernatural and I'm sure these other awesome books around how, um, put in the right meditative state, you can lift cars off, of dying babies and that sort of stuff. So I guess that's sort of how I'm starting to connect the dots. And um, I'm a, uh, for me, a background in endurance events, which is nothing compared to being locked up in a Zimbabwe jail and torture and things like that. But just going to that place of silence and going to that, all right, what's my next task? What's my next task? You, you become robotic and it's almost like you're disassociated. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what you do. It is a case of, this is, it's you're looking in the third person almost at times and you're sitting there sometimes laughing and going, what the, what is, what is going on? But there's an automatic pilot in all of us. And, and I'm just lucky that my automatic pilot had, had that ability. Yeah. So man, with the automatic pilot, like where, where did that come from? Oof, I, I think it came from, from early childhood. You know, I've touched on this when I was five years old, give or take, you know, I don't remember the specific age of back then I was abducted by, a local uh, person in our community. Mm. Um, you know, looking back, I, I, I try and pull the lessons from it, etc. I, I mean, look, it only came to light about six years ago when I wrote my life story for the first time. I actually had not really acknowledged this most of my life. Um, this person tried to assault me, uh, failed to a certain degree, but with the size difference, told me I would die if I ever told, you know, that, that sort of stuff. And, and what happened when I was five, was I think I, I separated from myself a little bit. And I never told anyone because I was always just in fear of my mother being killed and my family, which were the threats. And I, I went into that autopilot from that age. So, you know, that is me, me guessing and it is me applying some of what I've learned, but I feel that that was when I, I learned to separate. i tell you what, like I get now why you are, uh, when we met, you're like, I don't know how you can go without your children. And I'm like, I don't know how you can go through jail. Like for me, that's very, very, for me to adapt without children. I've actually, yeah, yeah, where I'm like fucking jail would be terrible. And, um, uh, for me, I've really adapted into this mission that we're building because of that. And, um, it can almost go the other way, mate. Like you've got a, you can hold on to these stories and use them to build momentum and build growth and that sort of stuff. But then what happens is, it's almost your whole, it becomes your identity. So for uh, up until 18 months ago, the fact that how my children became my identity, 
Um, so I really had to shift it again. And I don't often talk about it now because we've talked about it that much. So um, I, I, I really, even though it's very different scenarios, like I, I, I think we had some really cool things in common. And that's why I'm like, I really need this guy to be a part of the community. You've got such an intrinsic talent for uh, you're, you're instinctive in the way you work with people. And um, you have this internal gift that a lot of coaches um, have to really work on. And, and, and I see why you're a protected dad, but the fact that you went through an, like you would never let anyone harm your children the way that you were harmed as a, you, yeah. Like, yeah, you do. Lessons. You're right. That's you're spot on. And all, but also, my mother was the prime. I mean, the abduction basically became an early lesson in fear and how mm -hmm. to handle it. So mm -hmm. you know, at that age, uh, I mean, we can't talk now at our ages what it's like to be five. I mean, it's just not possible. But I think we have a bit enough of an understanding, especially as coaches, that the word fear doesn't exist to a five-year-old. None of those words exist. They don't. They're just not there. So it, it, that that created who I became. But my mother was the was the motivation for my parenting because she just gave me the the most beautiful example of just don't do this. If you don't do this, you will be an incredible father. So and I was lucky. And again, people look at me and think I'm a little bit mad when I can say that. But the truth is now she was a blessing in disguise because the father I am and the man I am is part and parcel because of that journey. And yeah, it's it's as insane as it sounds. Um it's led me to this point and this is, you know, as we've discussed is exactly where I'm supposed to be. hundred percent because I know that um, we've, we've talked about your, some of your difficulties moving to the next phase and it's trying to simplify everything because I'm very big on making it so simple that a, a five-year-old can understand it. Um, and that's why we're trying to get you to talk so you can uh, simplify it yourself and continue to grow, continue to expand. There's so much already just from those, uh, uh, just from, understanding how to like a lot of coaches don't get lost a lot of coaches don't get grief a lot of coaches and i would say nine out of ten coaches don't get um having things taken from them the way you did so to be able to draw on that like i, I don't know i get so excited but i'm not i'm not going to push you mate i want you to be excited and inspired uh to get out there and i'm really i'm really grateful where this is going so far so after where to next, mate? So you talk about getting it, getting abducted. We, we talked about abducted. You've, you, you've been in jail. Where do you want to go next on this amazing journey? Oh, look, it's an interesting question. You know, time permitting, there's, there's a lot there to talk about. I mean, I like to go to the positives, but I think that, you know, possibly as we discussed, that is where I spend a little bit too much time. Mm -hmm. is I, I like to turn everything into a lesson, but I don't give people the opportunity to hear where I, ca I got the lesson from. I, I have I have lived it and I turn it into the lesson that I then deliver instead of just giving the raw lesson. And this is, you know, one of the reasons why I, I jumped in so quickly with you because mm -hmm. I need that guidance to really get into the raw lesson because it's really not for me to perceive my story sometimes and turn it. It's really for me to just be brutally honest about it. And, you know, I, I do struggle. We could talk for days here. I mean, I could go in, like I was a hey, criminal gonna, in my teens. You're going to be back many times, brother. <laughs> Don't worry about that. You're going to be, you're going to be hosting this. Um, part of the reason we raise this platform is because we want our coaches like Leon and a couple of other earlier round coaches. I'm like, just use my platform. Like it, it we, we wanted to create a home 
um, that people could expand in because our results were not really heard of, which is phenomenal at the start, especially. Like I wanted to create something where Aaron could go, can I use your, plat- your, your podcasting platform and interview? And I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> like, let's go for yeah. it. Now, th- I think the thing that... Um, I think the thing that really, when I heard you talk about your story last last time, is that you left the country and then you went back. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. You, oh, so, like, so I, that, I was like, whoa, yeah. you went back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got. Well, look. Okay. So, in a nutshell, I, the first prison stay, I I bribed. I bribed. Uh, we can say this: the Zimbabweans don't have power, let alone the facility to get me here. So I bribed my way out into a bail situation, which was not supposed mm-hmm. to happen. And then I went to court for about 10 months to fight the charges because obviously there was some degree in one of the pieces of paper I held, but it was trumped up. It was all related to a political situation on a farm. Um, I took on a bunch of thieves. I am of a certain colour and they are of another. They turned it into a race issue. Inevitably, I won the war on the farm, but the long-term battle I lost because the politicians who I beat became heads of state once the regime had changed, once Robert Mugabe had died and they came gunning for me. So I fought them and I was told I was going to win. So I sunk a ton of money, about 20 grand US into bribes, um, secret meetings, you know, stuff that's, you know, only books and that are made of. And on my, my sentencing day, I was told you're going to pay about two grand in fines. You're going to walk free and you're going to disappear and shut up for a bit. No one's going to care about you. You're old news. So, um, I went to court that morning, didn't, you know, didn't really talk to anyone. It was just another day of the story. No one was really interested anymore. Um, and instead of going out the front doors, I was locked back up into the cells underneath court. I was remanded back into custody. I was dragged into Rory Central prison this time, which was yeah, a little bit tougher. 6,000 prisoners in that section of the jail. Um, very quickly, uh, the visitors I had in that section of the prison saw the clothing I was wearing and absolutely lost the plot. There were a lot of tears and I just sort of try and convince everyone I was more than fine. Leave me in prison. I'm going to fight this from in here. Do not pay for a ticket. Do not give these government people money because they'll put me on a plane. Um, eventually, they refused to listen and they paid for a ticket. And yeah, you know, the rest was history. I was deported on the spot. I hadn't seen my kids at this point. I chose not to let them into that environment. I'm very mm. grateful I didn't. I didn't want that trauma imprinted on their little minds. Uh, I got back to Australia, caught up with my half-brother. I hadn't seen in about 25 years. Um, incredible reconnection and one of the big gratitude moments of this whole experience. Mm. It tops up there really highly because, you know, I hadn't seen him since he was six years old. And I landed and it was family. And, I, you know, I don't have a big family. We're not, we're not a strong family. So it was a huge moment. Whenever I write about this, it always pops up. It's a big deal. But I wasn't here. I didn't want to be here. I hated here. I'm not Australian. I'm an African now. I went through all of that sort of stuff and I need to get back to my kids. So within three weeks, I'd lined up a job in Mozambique. Uh, The job was about a five-hour drive from where my kids were staying. So I left Australia and I went back to Mozambique. Now, um, the one thing that I I, I took into account... Isn't it funny? Like, I'm... Man, like Africa's always been one of these places that really. My father-in-law does re- retreat photos, and he does um, uh, wildlife photography, and he's done all the safaris around there. And um, some of the stories around people's safety in 
Africa. Like, I'm, it's kind of been a bit of a deterrent, but mind you, I've never walked around with one of the locals over there. But, like, just before we go into that next step, like, did you always feel safe apart from that? Like, why yeah. you're there? Yeah. Yeah, look, in, really in, in South Africa, I didn't. When I first moved from the Middle East into South Africa, no, I carried a pistol with me everywhere. It was a horrible place. And I, I loved the country, but it was dangerous. Now, when I moved from South Africa into Zimbabwe, um, almost instantly I felt safe. It's incredible. Mm. It is. I feel safer in that country than I did many times living in Sydney. Mm. If you can believe it. And look, I am a little bit crazy, but I, I, I just never had an issue there. You know, mm -hmm. I guess that's because, you know, people see Africa and they think of Africans. It's not really that simple. Africa mm -hmm. is made up of a thousand different tribes and the mm -hmm. countries that you see on a map don't exist. Yeah. So it was a tribal continent until it was interfered with. And, and the Shono, who are the predominant tribe who runs Zimbabwe, are, were an agricultural tribe. They were used to being basically bullied and, and pushed around by, you know, the Zulus and all the other guys surrounding them. They weren't a violent um, tribe of people. So it was incredible. You know, my maids raised my kids, you know, you trust them implicitly, you know, um, they live in your house. You've got guard, you know, you've got staff everywhere. It's, 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 it's I it, felt it, safe. Is it that old adage? Like it takes a, it takes an entire community to bring up children. Is it like when, with a village, with the village mentality and things like that, is it like everyone raises each child as their own? It is, and, and it's one of the things that I love about Africa and that we seem to have lost in a Western culture is this mm. idea of a sense of family community. You know, I look and I see what happens in families here, especially if someone passes away, and you've got this sudden, disgusting turn of behaviour where everyone's out for everyone's blood and throats because of a bit of money. Mm. Now, you know, one thing that is beautiful about Africa and the third world in general, I've seen this through Asia when I've been there as well, is this there's that sense of community and, and family really has no lines. I mean, in a, in a country such as Zimbabwe with an unemployment rate of 93%. Um, 93%. Yeah. And that's understated. It's probably closer to 96. Jeez. Yeah. Now, so every worker I had, say, for example, we'll use the farm as an example. If I had a hundred laborers, each one of them was looking after a minimum of 18 families mm. because of AIDS, because many of the men had died. But secondly, it was because of the poverty situation and there was just no jobs. So when I paid them, they were literally paying for, you know, 60, 80, 90 kgs of mealy meal, which is just the staple food source to be sent out to families all over the country. And it was only getting worse when I left, mm. you know, that, that is, and it's, and it's, it's sad because the country shouldn't be in that state, but it's also incredibly humbling to watch how freely they give of each other and to watch these kids who, you know, you've seen the old cliche of starving Africans, you know, well, they've got, sometimes with one pair of clothes on their back and not even a toy. And when they come and see me in the morning just to say hi, they smile from ear to ear every day. Okay. There's a great book, uh, The Resilience Project, and they talk about he went over to India and did some teaching over there and he uses a story of a kid basically having no shoes and going to school every day and just yeah. his level of gratitude and appreciation and mm. like broken down swings and, and all that sort of stuff. And the level of, the, the level of love um, they have, I mean, uh, the reason why I'm smiling a bit when you talk about community, because my, uh, my partner, Jess, she has two sisters and when there's t 20 kids around here, which is totally overwhelming for me, I'm like, they parent the same way. It's like they yell the yeah. same way. They're like, they don't care whose child it is. They're getting in trouble. They don't care whose child it is. They're getting fed the same. Like it's, it's, it's something that I've really had to embrace. Like uh, the beautiful thing about Jess was the fact that she's, the kid energy, the level, I've got more kid energy around me than I've ever had in my entire life. 
<laughs> which is what's one thing that's the gift that's kept me going. Like, um, and before we go back into Zimbabwe, like, I want to ask you, mate, like, are you finding it hard to identify the, the, the gift of energy that's around you? Is that, is that been a challenge for you not seeing those uh, beautiful kids of yours? Huge. Huge. Yep. It's, um, you know, look, I can't show you cause I'm on my laptop, but if I turned, I turned it around and showed you, you know, some days I'm not sure whether what I look at here is, is smart or whether it's part of my ambition and my driving force, but there's just pictures of my kids all over this wall. And, um, I, you know, I'm not ashamed to say to say that, if I cried daily when I first got back the second time, it was three, four times a day. Mm. And I wrote a lot about this the other day, you know, the level of the things that got me, you know, the negatives to prison for me were things like loss of kids, disconnection, kids, abandonment, kids, no support kids, everything that I lost in those first six negatives when I did a knowledge and wisdom still goes back to them, you know, mm. and it is, it's, it's, I feel like I'm not doing my job. I've lived an incredibly gifted life, an incredibly selfish life up until mm. I had my children. I did what I want, when I wanted, I went where I want. I had my, I did what, everything it was on me, 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 mm. me. When I had those kids, all of a sudden I had this beautiful grounding force. So do I miss them? Oh, fuck. That's, that's the obvious, man. It's, it's, it's um, yeah. I mean, it's, the it's, energy, you know, they talk about like the energetic being. So the thing that really helps me, and I really hope that as we work together, I hope you can see that the gratitude and the gift. Cause I asked the question of myself not so long ago is um, would I ever exchange knowing Jess and her kids to get back with my kids? And the answer is absolutely not. You said that and to be the first time we chatted and I have and to admit it, it touched so me. It, it, it touched, but it, it touched me. Cause could I say that? No, but at the same time, I greatly respect that because it shows the depth that you've gone to, to ask it. Because most mm -hmm. people, I don't think, would have the balls to even go into that world and ask themselves that question. That is well, an incredibly brave and honest and you know, vulnerable thing. Well, man, like I look at my life now and, uh, and part of what we're trying to build in this home in the background, and you're going to see it as we reveal with the new branding and things like that. Like as a community, brother, if there's ever a chance that, and I know like I've got people watching this now, listening to this now, if there's ever a chance we can help you achieve that goal, like you've got a, you've got 25 coaches behind you at the moment. So like we, all you'd have to do is really become vulnerable and own it. And we would help you with that. And like, even if it's to get stuff back to your family, like, like you said, something so small can seem so huge. We are so abundant in this country. Um, and it's part of our mission is to, to protect people and to create space and create homes. So if we can help you in any way, man, like that's all you, you just got to talk to us. Like we're, we're here for you. So, uh, and Kelly's in the background going, mm, yeah. So you got people there hundred percent, like really, really um, feeling this with you. So mate, like with Zimbabwe, like you, you when you, when you, you're back in Mozambique, all right. And what's Mozambique like? Because I've heard of Mozambique, but like, I, I don't, I can't, I should really Google some pictures. Like I, I've. Okay. Well, look, Mozambique, if, if, you know, people, some people have an idea of Zimbabwe because of what happened there during the war. And then also what happened with the farm invasions. It's an incredibly mountainous, beautiful, very simple country, but was developed by very much behind the back of the South African model. There was roads. It was very much white governed. There was everything was there and it's fixed. Well, Mozambique is one of those countries without that. There are roads, there are roads and that's about it. And when mm -hmm. I say there are roads, they're not even that great. Sometimes a road that might take you three hours town to town can take you 12. Mm -hmm. um, the civil war has been kicking on and off 
in that place, which, you know, I didn't really think about when I went back, but it was, it was kicking off again, which is the flip for Linamo Renamo battle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's beautiful and raw. I love raw. You know? Do they have incredible uh, resources over there? Is that what it's about? Yeah, they, they do. Yeah, it is. Look, it, it's, it's again, a very tribal thing. What happens is different parts of the country will have a different resource. Now, if you've got gold or platinum or diamonds in one region, the government wants control of that region because that's where their source of export dollar comes. That's where they're going to get their money from. Now, if mm-hmm. the guys locally realise that, but when the money is then sent to the capital city, it's not shared equally and the mm-hmm. roads in that part of the country are poor, there's no clinics. I mean, when I was hunting and anti-poaching in Mozambique before any of this, many, many years ago, the amount of lives I saved just because I got into a vehicle with one of my tracker's sons and drove to a clinic would ski. Mm. And all I had to do was drive. Otherwise, they were sitting at a clinic with, no, with one nurse and she was watching their, they watched their children die. I mean, you look at, oh, man, like, that's just, I'm... I've just gone straight. You look at like all the mob mentality we've got in this country and people like uh, uh, so fearful of, I don't really want to get, I don't really talk about the shit that's going on with COVID because I don't fucking believe it. But (laughs) like you, you, you look at what's going on in countries like that. Like (laughs) they must piss, they must piss themselves laughing when we're complaining about uh, fucking like we all got a pay rise because the government decided to give us some money without that sort of stuff. They must piss themselves laughing. Well, they don't have clean water. I mean, people still die of malaria constantly in Mozambique. I mean, some of those regions there, you get malaria three, four times a year and the kids are still dying. They've still got the mortality rates they did 40 years ago. And there's plenty of resources there. Um, it's just Africa. You know, sadly, one of the things I learned and another one of the gratitude moments I had is, is it is an insane continent. And what happens is, you, you know, you adapt to it. Mm. And what you see is everyday normal. You, you get here and you're like, hang on, that wasn't right. I saw a lot of that, you know, like I'm on a mission at the moment, you know, there was two prisoners I was in, an Ethiopian and a South Sudanese guy. They're political prisoners. have been locked up in there for they'll be seven and six years now without charge. And I, I promised them that once I was safe, I would go on the war, war path. So this week I've decided I'm actually going to take on their embassies in Australia mm. because it's, it's because of those two embassies they're still in prison. We had a lot of... Um... In where I grew up in the Darling Downs in Toowoomba, there was a lot of Sudanese and Melbourne too. Like where I lived, there was a lot yeah. of Sudanese. And, um, and I don't think deporting them to another country is necessarily because, because it's such a different, like to, I've seen the nightmare stories of forming gangs and things like that over in this country and they get such a bad rap. But some of the Sudanese people that I met, they're, they're, they are incredible people. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the, the, the could, and we'd only see it on the news about the gangs and the violence over here and, everything that's going on like but a lot of that is our fault mm-hmm. that was we we didn't identify what the what was possible when they got here mm-hmm. we take people from a war-torn country and yep. you give them everything and then you, you you don't really i don't know offer them i guess a fair chance at a balanced assimilation program which is a chance to fit in with us because mm-hmm. they're a minority what would you do what do you think the whites do in africa they band they, together yeah they do they hang out well, with because, each other because of course they do now mm-hmm. you come from an area where you're used to carrying an AK and you've watched your brother and your uncle die. Mm-hmm. You get to a foreign country where you're picked on, you are looked at as different, even if it's mm-hmm. not openly racist, we are a relatively racist country. Of mm-hmm. course, they're going to band together. Mm-hmm. And then sadly, yeah, they, they get into a gang and then we know what happens. doesn't matter what color you are. A gang is a gang. 
Yeah, well, well, I did some work in schools in Victoria and some of the athletic ability, like I just, I got to intern, I high fives and hugs and, and just greeted them. I just see people as people. Like you, you, you're exactly the same as me as far as when you see someone, they're just people. Like doesn't worry me, but I, I had the privilege of working with some of the, in, in, in sporting capacity, coaching teams and that, just incredible kids, just like uh, really left a, a lasting imprint on my heart just about how grateful they were that this uh, bearded white dude would come and um, give them some of their time and, and some love and some discipline and, um, and just, yeah, a lot of acceptance. So, um, so you're over in Mozambique. All right. What were you, what were you, what was your job? Like just what, what did you um, find the job in? Well, it was basically taking over a mealy or a maize mill. So maize is a staple diet of, of Africans. Yep. It's called many different things. Um, and a butchery or an abattoir up in a Tet province of, more, of northern, sort of northwestern Mozambique. Yep. It was, uh, I don't know, it was a plant worth about seven million, which had just never run properly. And mm. when I spoke to those guys, they got a bit of a history check on me and said, all right, well, you're capable of anything, go have a crack at it. So I was to go there and start up buying cattle out of the Korabasa Basin and, you know, start a little bit of fattening and sort of revitalized this business. What I realized very quickly when I got there, um, I did a few days in the abattoir, which was an eye opener. I thought I'd seen blood in my life. <laughs> Nothing. That was just, yeah, that was a horrible, horrible place in African abattoir. Um, someone got wind that I, I'd been in Zimbabwe because I was using a lot of Shauna slang. I was speaking a little bit and one of the guys was like, well, are you from Zimbabwe? Mozambicans don't like white people, hey? Zimbabweans, mm -hmm. I've got a history of not liking, but in all honesty, there's no real racism in Zimbabwe. You don't see it. There's no, there's no um, aggression and no fighting going on there. Mozambique, as soon as I landed and as soon as they saw my personality and my leadership style, they went after me. And so first it was death threats to my phone, which didn't bother me. It's the sort of thing that just water off a duck's back. But then my work permit got snagged. And so the bosses of this company said, look, you've got to go hide because you're not legally here yet. So they went and shoved me in a little house somewhere and said, you just got to sit in there for a bit. So I sat and then I jumped the border. I got tired of sitting and I was like, you know what? I'm a prohibited immigrant to Zimbabwe, which means I'm not legally allowed to cross the border. I'm not allowed within the confines of Zimbabwe for any reason, but it was my kids. So I jumped the border. I went through a little place called Espungabera, which is an old cattle border post in Mozambique, um, near all the old macadamia farms and stuff like that. And um, bribed my way through one checkpoint and just jumped the next one and then got back to my kids. I pitched up without warning to the family and was like the returning hero. What are you doing here? How did you get here, etc. Got to spend a beautiful Christmas with my children, which was the most incredible thing because I hadn't seen them since that 12th of... In fact, I'd gone... I'd gone I was resentenced on the 20th of August. I hadn't seen them. It was the weekend before that. So I now hadn't seen them in about three months. Yeah. So I got to spend that time with them, but then um, time came when I had to go back that first time. And um, it's one of the most heartbreaking and horrible moments of my entire existence as my daughter and my son clung to me for dear life and had to be, uh, had to be physically f pried from me. Mm when I was um, having to walk out the gate to go back to Mozambique. Mm. But um, yeah, I'll never forget it. Um, yeah, so I went back to Mozambique, was hoping for the work permit again, still didn't come about. And what it looked like, it was um, 
the right people had been called within government to do a, a search on me and they'd found out something had happened in Zimbabwe. They weren't sure what, but they were trying to hold the permit up. So I jumped the border again into Zimbabwe to see my kids. It was at this point, um, that, that second time where my nerves started to go. As across the border, these guys were realizing there was possibly more money to be had. So they started to extort me a little bit harder. And I'm normally really good with them. I knew how to work the system and I know how to keep confident around them. I started to shake and I started to get aggressive. And I started to see myself possibly doing something that was going to end me up in another prison, but possibly mm. in Mozambique this time. So I crossed the border, I said my goodbyes, and I said, guys, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to end up stuck in a prison in Africa forever, and I'm not going to do my kids any good, and I'm not doing you guys any good. So the agreement was made then that I would, um, I would return to Oz voluntarily, mm. which, I, which I did a few months ago. And, and then to very, very grateful, you, you met the, your amazing partner. And, oh, my uh, God, grateful. That's not even the word. <laughs> I can't even explain to you, you know, when we, we, we use the phrase unicorn, mm -hmm. my God, did I find my unicorn. I tell you what, man, like I, I, I met your unicorn a while ago when she was talking to my unicorn. And if you had have asked me 12 months ago <laughs> that I'd be doing this podcast with this incredible human being and also doing some stuff um with her and that as well i'd be like nah, <laughs> nah <laughs> this is bullshit so um but yeah it was simply a simple hello and then she'd watch some of our stuff and then that's sort of how it went from there and that's it you, you just never know like you just never know the surprise the things like the, the great success in life is the stuff that you're not prepared for like as wow i didn't see that oh, coming yeah. <laughs> so oh yeah and i've, so, I've so had those yeah <laughs> how did you meet her so do you land in sydney again no, I landed this time. So first time I landed in Sydney and then came up to the sunny coast to stay with my brother. Um, I flew out of Brisbane second time, flew back into Brisbane this time. I stayed with my brother again. We went out on a, oh, it was a Friday night. No, Saturday, it was a Saturday night. Actually. You went down Drift Bar, were you? <laughs> um, I think it, it, was, it was Ocean Street. Oh, it was Ocean Street. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was Ocean Street. And I can't remember the name of the club. I don't <laughs> do good clubs and bars. Yeah, and it was literally, I don't drink, you know. I, I, yeah. stopped, I stopped drinking. I mean, I got to the point where I think I went like 18 months without it. I just don't like booze that much. But that night I went against my rules because I was with my brother. And I got rather, rather, rather tanked. And I think it was like 2 o'clock in the morning I bumped into... <laughs> if I tell this story on its truth, I don't know whether she's going to slaughter me. So anyway... <laughs> I've got my, she knows that hey, okay so hey, here bro, bro, you're in, it's, it's between you and me all right it's between me oh, yeah, and you okay a, she can hear, she can hear every word right now trust me and i think she, i don't know whether she's going to be laughing or not so anyway i was quite drunk and it was like two in the morning and we started dancing if you can call what i do dancing um yeah i, I thought i knew her. i thought she was a chick off tinder <laughs> that i'd met earlier in the night can you believe that? I was, I know, I know, I know. It's awesome, eh? Who cares? Yeah, I know, I know. And I said that to her and she's like, what? She looked at me like, who do you think I am? And then I told her, she said, no, 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 dude, wrong chick. I was like, oh, you fuck, you talk about shrinking down to about an inch tall. Because I had not, all I'd done is said hello to this girl. She said she was out, I was going to go, said, I said hi, she wasn't my type, I'd walked away. I thought that was her again at two in the morning after a few too many tequilas. <laughs> Fucking hell. 
I know. Hey, mate, hey, when I uh, when I met Jess, mate, I was uh, a setup, and um, she didn't realise I was setup. I kind of knew I was just out of a divorce and like, fuck women, they're bad. And, and, and then I saw her, she was up on the stage dancing with a mouse stripper at a hen's night. Like, <laughs> that good. So there you go. So there's bit, and I'm like, oh, I was done as soon as I saw her. Like, I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> but yeah, I think, <laughs> I think yours trumps mine, mate. Yeah. I'm just lucky. And that just goes to show you what a unicorn. She just saw that as, um, as funny, you know, like yeah. it's the most incredible grounded sense of humor and this ability to, to sort of see through and see me mm-hmm. first time in my life I've been seen. Mm. It's, it sounds um, weird in 46 years with my journey, you'd think that that would have happened and I'm not taking anything away from the women and the partners I've had in my life because it wasn't about them that they didn't see me. It was because of the women I chose and, and, and the issues I'd had with my mother and me trying to fix and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, I was just lucky the timing of my life and the circumstances that I, yeah, I allowed her and she saw me. I love that you use the word allowed. I think uh, when it, people yeah. use try, it's all about force. Mm-hmm. But if we can allow those feelings to flow through and even I've been a bit resistant in my own, we've got, um, and I'll get you to come on Wednesday night if you can and be part of the open forum because they're talking about men and sexual connection, getting back into their relationship. And I think it does take a bit of experience, uh, a bit of life experience. And also, yeah, I've been talking to Leon about this in a separate group as well. It's something that I'd like to get into because it, we, we are a problem when it comes to this. And I think mm-hmm. that we need, there needs to be more open discussion about it. 100%. Yeah. 100%. And that, like, this is why we've got, uh, and we have an incredible group of guys like uh, the Godfather Reese and, Coach Spice and um, uh, I don't know. We're going to have to come up with a nickname for you, Aaron, because I tell you, <laughs> we might have to call you Captain Unbelievable, I think. But, um, but hey, we, um, haven't even, we haven't even started yet. We're, know, we're just the tip man. of the like, iceberg. We've, we've, we've so only got an hour tonight. We only got an hour-ish tonight. But um, <laughs> I, I want to uh, – there's so – like we said, and I think what we can do too is like inviting you into – the connection elements with relationships and drawing from your ex- past experience. All, all I ask the coaches to do, if they're going to, if they're going to share and they're going to teach draw from your experience and use it from a place of inspiration. Mm. And this is about inspiration. Like uh, the amount of people you could potentially go could really, like you said, just driving someone to the doctor just to get, like treatment, like you just sharing openly might be as simple as someone driving, driving a child to the doctor so that, that they can live. Yeah. And I'd like to tap into the, the whole idea of men as leaders again as well. Uh, it's just something I also brought up with the guys today. Yep. What is a man? What is a man in 2020? What is, what is it? What, is, what, what, are, what are we? And, mm. and, and what is expected? It is a, a very different, you know, I'm very, a little opinionated on this. I'm, my age sometimes gets me in trouble. Um, but it is something I'd like to debate and discuss because I think we're failing a generation of boys. It's interesting. Like, I think your background would be perfect because if you look at when it started going wrong, it was like back in the 1800s, fathers would bring up children and it'd be all about the family and creating enough for the family to get what they needed to get. And, and it was all about the family that and men were bringing up men when then what happens is the industrial revolution came in and then, um, women started work. bringing out men and that's nothing, uh, my mum was a single mum and my kids are being raised by a single mum and things like that. So there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that, but ultimately it, it had, it, it shifted. It did. And, and look, this is the thing, all these discussions are never about accusations and Mm-mm. truth, truth be told, um, 
women don't do a bad job, but there's something missing. Job. There's something missing from the man to son. That's the part that I have an issue with. We are we're there. I'm going to you be quite brutal here. The soft. There is a lack of leadership, and I'm not, you know whether it's because we don't have wars anymore. I don't know, but there's just there's no standing up for what is mm -hmm. right anymore. Men tend to take a, take a back seat. We're not the protectors anymore. And I'm not saying in a yeah, violent sense. I'm just on. talking about that. You know, um, we're supposed to stand side by side with our, even my ex, my ex and I. You know, no matter what happened, take a bullet for her. I see couples and they split, and I see this. Whole, you know, you know the stuff that goes on. Oh, and I'm shit. just thinking yep. you share a you share a child together. Mm -hmm. What happened to that? I don't care. Your differences are your differences, but once you share a child together, you should find a way. Major level of gratitude I have for this woman. Like I was prepared to move her to the Sunshine Coast, like pay for her to move to the Sunshine Coast, give us a, like put her in a house. Like we were prepared to go to that level, but because of uh, the resistance and the bitterness and uh, and. Uh, the hurt and the betrayal and all that sort of stuff. And you, and Jess is like, Jess said to me, I didn't really get it. She's like, it's really important. You understand your masculine energy. I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? This is pre growth. And she, and she just pointed out, don't be a fucking pussy. Mm. And then what that does is it flips a, a, a Switch. A, a switch on and all of a sudden you, you feel like the decision maker you feel like uh, and i mean and i've read a lot of stuff around alison a armstrong and I'm, I'm not sure if you've followed her journey or you've read her but she talks about from to go to to really feel like a man like i've only really felt like a man in the last two years now I don't, that might seem really weird to people but i've only really felt comfortable as a man and a leader in the last two years at the age of 38 and that's, what I'm, talking, and that's what I'm talking. Yeah. And that's what I'm talking about right there. That's oh. you just explained it exactly. And the problem is, though, is is you, we've got to be careful in a PC society that what a man means, because this is not about taking anything away from women. It's got nothing mm -hmm. to do with that. It is about the fact that it took you to 38 to, to feel like a man. Mm -hmm. Something went. Something's so much gone confusion, wrong, brother. Yeah. So much confusion. So much rejection. So much guilt. So much shame. So mm. much like. Uh, so much blame, so much shame. Like I had so much shame attached to my truth. Uh, I I just hadn't found my truth yet. Yeah, and I'd like I'd like I think that that we've got an opportunity as as truth speakers, as as people who are able to share that vulnerability, to inspire this younger generation to not make the same mistakes. You know, yeah. look, I don't want to see this split this splitting up thing. It really hurts me to see it. Look, two adults may have their differences, and I don't. It's not my business to get involved about why people split. I don't care, but what I do care about is when I look at the child. Mm. That's all for me. That's all I care about, and and the rest of it. Going, you don't have to like each other. You don't, mm -mm. but you will respect each other because that woman, especially as a man, that woman carried your children, and vice versa. If you financially take care that man financially cares for his kids. There's got to be a way that we get over the humanness to be oh, right. Man. Do you want to be right gonna, or want to be happy? Yeah. What's going to happen is part of our mission and we're really, and I'm not going to give too much away because just as like you give too much away. But the fact is a lot of this stuff around DV and men being fucked off and fucked up and everything else. And some men don't want to change and, and we get that, but there's, uh, it's almost like, it's almost like you really need to, rip people out of their environment and put them into a new environment. So then all yeah. of a sudden there's that chance to like really just calm balance, work out what's important, what their priority order is, reskill train. And it's not the government's responsibility. It really isn't. So like it's, it's, it's something that we're looking to really go deep around and, 
um, and and like even uh, you, you, and especially as you talk about men and leadership, knowing your background, like man, brother, I follow you. Like you have so much life experience and so much knowledge, and even like we talk about all this new thing around breath work and this new meditation. Like you've been doing this for twenty years. Yeah, it was. I was lucky. My martial arts sort of taught me from a very young age, and like I said, that breath, the breath has saved my life. I mean, the breath has got me jobs. The breath, that the breath. If I could give any gift to any person that I teach in that first twenty minutes of any session, is it is the breath. Without yep. a shadow of a doubt, once you learn, breath is life, and it's not the breath in. You know, you know when you were young and you were told, you know, if it was a, my mum had a lot of boyfriends, so it was, stop, take a breath, take a big deep breath in. Bullshit. It's the breath out that's important because you're breathing mm-hmm. intrinsically. You can't stop breathing, and it's otherwise you pass out. It's the breath out. It's forcing that bad air out in its entirety from upper to lower lobe. To me, it's a gift, and I was lucky, and I try and share it, and I find it's probably one of the hardest things to teach. The most simplest thing that I've probably got in my toolbox, the hardest thing to teach people is the understanding of what the power of the breath can do. Well, I know that when I'm very angry, if I don't breathe properly, the, the diaphragm becomes very tight and very sore because anger stores around those big, areas. Big, and, big time. Yeah, big time. So I know that exhale all the way in and then obviously diaphragm expands and then ultimately the, the push out, everything starts to relax. But also too, I don't think people realize what that does actually for the spinal fluid and, and opening up different um, uh, different energy centers and nerves and things like that. Um, uh, uh, people are just people don't also don't get that when you're in thought, you're not present. Yeah, breath, breath basically allows energy to flow. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. what it does. So when you're aware of your breath, it allows the energy to do what it's supposed to. You feel what you're supposed to, and that you allow. It's that a word allow and flow. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, one thing that we did for the deaf community, and we've got. Uh, as you know, Reese and Trudy, and you've started to tap into their their, their amazing uh, story. But one thing we did at our retreats with the deaf community was because the classic form of meditation, sit cross-legged, we had to teach them how to breathe first. Like that was the first thing. That was like teaching that uh, teaching deaf community about um, how to intrinsically understand breathing. Like it took four days. Yeah. And it wasn't that we were breathing for twelve hours a day. It was that it took four days for them to truly understand it. So we've actually been adopting breath work into um, our deaf experience and, and it's changing people. It, it really is. I, I honestly is. And, and I, I'm not surprised it would take four days because it is because it comes so naturally to us. And it's a part of life that is physiologically built in trying to teach people that there's a way that it has to be changed as they look at you like, but I breathe. Mm-hmm. I breathe fine. That, that, that their brain does not want to accept or understand a deeper level of breath. So I love it though. When you see that tipping point, you know, like you get it when you see someone with a knowledge and wisdom breakthrough and it's mm-hmm. like, hallelujah. I mean, I get that with breath as well. You know? Um, well, so like you said, flow, allow all that other stuff. Now, um, when let's, let's go back like uh, martial arts, mm. martial arts, like how many years, like when did you start practicing? Like, uh, did you in Sydney and things like that? Did you have a bit of, was it, was it rough for you in Sydney or? Yeah. I, I, look, I was, I, I grew up in a place called Macquarie Fields in Sydney, which mm-hmm. I think up until maybe the last sort of 10 years, I don't correct me if it might've been a little bit sooner was the heroin capital of Australia. So it, yeah, wow. it was rough. It was rough. You know, we were, we were, it was gangs. It was, the suburb itself was designed on, on a, 
on a plan that was used in South Central, um, what you know, Watson Compton in the states. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's all it's all housing commission. So it's basically all. So it's dead end street after dead end street for about seven kilometres. And wow. so each one of those dead end streets was a gang. Mm-hmm. And so by the time you were sort of five years old, you were in a gang, and there's just a lot of drug use amongst the parents, a lot of mental mental issues, a lot of violence. It wasn't it wasn't easy, but you didn't know any difference, so you didn't have a reason to feel sorry for yourself. You just got on with it as you would. Yeah, so yeah, it w- it was tough, um, but like I said, it was the norm, so you just mm. get on with it. It's funny, like. Uh... And that's, you've said to me, like the just get, it's, uh, I'll use the term just get on with it. The ability to slow you down and actually look at, go a little bit deeper um, has been the challenge for you because you've, your whole life has been, let's just get on with it. Yeah, that's, that's like I said, for me, the biggest struggle in, you know, you said to me, go write stories and I can tell stories, you know, especially face to face or to people, it's a lot easier because I can work with the energy that I look and see what they, what they want, what they want, what they need. Um, this is different. I, I, I diminish the story because to me it's, it's short, but then, you know, this week, especially since we spoke, I have been noticing a lot deeper moments in the stories, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. looking out through prison bar windows as the sun came in and I can re-smell things and it's, I'm slowly getting there, but there's so and much there. I listen to Nelson Mandela, obviously everyone in the world loves Nelson Mandela who knows his story and things like that. Like I listened to his book pretty intrinsically about what he went through in those prisons and where they put them. And that's what I'm picturing like for you, like uh, very basic, very primitive, very uh, like as a political prisoner, like they were, they were locked away. They were tucked away. They didn't have newspapers. They couldn't get messages out. Like, yeah, uh, look, he, he did it a hell of a lot harder than I did, but it was, it, it, you were pretty much, I was within, within a section of the prison with every type of nationality you can think of. Every African was pretty much represented there. Gambians, Burundians, Ghanans, you know, they were all there. So the languages was incredible to listen to that many people speak. But then every night the court guys would come in and they were normally local Shauna guys. So it was very simple. The, you know, the lice were a problem. You know, the blankets were absolutely riddled with them. And Hmm. my, I was lucky the first prison stint I did to let me keep my clothes. So I managed to keep the lice away for about seven days. But then when those things kicked in, I can tell you now one of the most excruciating and most horrible feelings in the world is to be riddled with lice in your clothes. To the point it got that bad. When I got out of prison the first time, um, they dropped me off at, uh, at one of the police stations and someone was supposed to come and collect me. I was so riddled with lice. And at that point I was still a smoker and I didn't have a cigarette. I walked 17 kilometres home. In a, pair of, in a pair of prison slops and jeans that hadn't been washed and clothes. I walked all the way from one side of Itchy. town. Yeah, I just couldn't stand still. It was a disgusting feeling. I hated it. Oh, man. I can't even imagine what... Oh, I don't think... Um, well, we, had, we went on this... Um, she's watching tonight, actually. Like, for some... We were staying in Bali at a really nice resort and on a retreat. And then I get a message at, like, 1.30 in the morning, my bed's in lice and... I'm like, because we had, no, it was like 12.30 at night because we had to go and climb uh, Mount Batua and you leave at 1.32 in the morning. So, uh, and then it's like, then we climb the mountain and do sunrise and then we go to a, a water slide to day spa. Like, it's pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, I've got, fucking <laughs> poor Terry. She's got life bites all up and down her ass. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> like, this is, but she got up and climbed the, climbed the mountain. But yeah, it was, 
she had no sleep. Um, and she was, yeah, but that yeah, was you just don't a few sleep. Hours. You don't sleep. You, you don't. And that's when they come out. That's when they're active and that's when they start. And then, you know, the next day I was lucky and I, was, I had people smuggling stuff in the prison. So I had cigarettes to use as currency. So I would get my clothes off and walk around pretty much in a pair of borrowed shorts while some guy sat there and picked the, t- picked the lice out and tried to kill mm-hmm. them. So you'd kill the bulk of them, but then you'd put your clothes back on and in the middle of the night, sort of one o'clock, you'd feel them start again. And, you know, you got guys pretty much all over you. There's guys everywhere. You know, it's six by fifteen, seventy. Work out what what sort of space you've got. But you oh, know, there are other moments in there doing prayers. You know, the first night in there, there was a guy in there who was a cab driver who'd been set up. The police to set him up, and he said, "Pray with me." And there was, like I said, a full cell, seventy plus guys, and this was my first night now in the in the real prison. Um, and we faced the wall. And he did his their, their sort of Seventh Day Adventist Pentecostal, whatever I don't know what religion they are, and he prayed and they pray in a song. It's very much a song. Yeah, and I will never forget that he was gone the next day. Never saw him again. But those prayers that that helped me sleep that first night. Didn't know mm. what half of what he was saying. Didn't care. Um, I settled in. It was like that was in its own little form of meditation. Listening to him do that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I want to ask you a really tough question before we go. And I don't know, you probably thought about this every day. So is the goal to bring the kids and family over here? Or is it, what, where, where, where's your heart? Like, I know you've got your unicorn there. Yeah. And this is a tough question. You probably no, can't, if you don't want to answer it. No, man, no, like, I can. I can. I can now. No, no, no. Bring, this, what do you want to do? Where's the big goal for you? It's here. Yeah. yeah look, you, look, if, if I, I went through, you know, I've been writing list and list of benefits to prison and, and going through all of this, this tools. And, and I'd re I'd worked a lot of this stuff in my own way with my own tools and yeah, nice. using some of the steps and stuff, you know, stuff I'd used with other people, but I, I've used yours and some of the stuff that comes up. No, this is, this is where I've always supposed to be. I'm home. I get to, to see the beach um, every morning, every Sunday. I mean, you're just up the road from me. And I, I like, we should just say, fuck it, COVID and catch up. Actually, that's what we'll do next weekend. You and I face-to-face meeting because we haven't even met. It's all been like, we've met yeah. through Zoom. Yeah. We have actually, I, I, I think um, we'll bring the pooch. We'll bring them. Let's just, we'll catch up next weekend, which will be phenomenal because, hey, it's under 10. <laughs> people and uh i think that'd be that'd be really phenomenal because you're like you're like one beach down from me like yeah. uh, where, where yeah. were the and, beach and, is? and i'm up there all the time we go fish up there every now and then and we yeah, take yeah. ollie out for we take out for a walk but you yeah, know i'm home now you know yes yes am, am i truly home without my kid no it doesn't matter where i am in the world it doesn't mm. matter i could I, you could give me five million dollars right now and you could give me a big house and everything i could ever financially or wealth-wise wanted i'm never going to be home until my kids are with me but i've also realized that this is an opportunity if i have my children with me now i would have a job mm-hmm. i wouldn't be doing this i mm-hmm. would not be sitting in front of you doing this right now if my children were with me mm. i wouldn't do it because i would be head down dad 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 so one of the gratitude moments i get out of this is the fact that i wouldn't be able to pursue this and mm-hmm. um, i'm realizing more and more every day that this is actually not my choice I've known for 20 years, 25. In fact, I've known since I was a teenager, someone asked me, what are you going to do one day? And I said, I was going to turn my child into, a childhood into a lesson for others. Mm. Now, let, let alone did I realise that there was going to be just a little bit more than a childhood to turn into a lesson for others. <laughs> There's just a tiny bit more on top, of, on top of what I thought, you know. We've got years as a criminal, we've got drugs, we've got, you name it, we've got it. It's, uh, it's and I think that's, 
like the stand in courage and sort of really own your story. That's a lot of men don't do that. Like, um, uh, I've heard story like I used to be, and this is another thing I used to do. Like I used to be so full of shame pre growth and going through the affair and, and all this shit around losing money. I used to basically threaten the people that cared me. I'd give them a warp message as if I was going to end it. And fucking then I turn my phone off and all one big fucking game for people to come over and, and chase me and give me the support. I was just so full of fucking shit. And um and so in my head, that critic, those voices, that that committee, like uh and guys just won't go to that depth. I know you do, the guys that we have in our community do, like they own their shit. Like uh one of the videos we did for Reese was like, Reese, Trudy's gonna write down what a shit person you are, you're gonna read it out and she's gonna sign. Like that's, and he's not a shit person, but like as far as how shit she felt in the relationship at the time, and then he got to share his story and it's phenomenal. But what they've been able to do to go to that level of, you know what, I was all sorts of fucked up. I didn't see the beauty, the magic, the love. And if you see these guys, like it's like you and Lucy and you and uh, those two together, like they're just, you can feel the connection. And I think that's something that guys, and we're going to talk about it on Wednesday night, mate. I want you on that Zoom, on that uh, yeah, podcast. No. If you like to, it's going to be open slather for us, us guys yeah. to speak when we want. So I think that uh, by you being this vulnerable, me, the guy, we're going to, we're going to get a group of guys together to really, and it's not about sitting around the fire and seeing Kumbaya and fucking getting your clothes no. off and beating your chest and <laughs> some of that shit that I see. Oh my God. No, um, no, 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 no. This is confronting. I mean, to me personally, I want to confront. I really would like to, to strip some of the layers of bullshit away because mm-hmm. we're our own worst enemy. We've got no one to blame. We're men. Mm-hmm. We're men. And mm-hmm. that's part of what I see is this whole question is when do we take responsibility? And I hear people slagging the word stoicism. Oh, it's bad. It's bad. There are parts of stoicism, you know, the holding in your feelings and that that are bad, but the, the basic principle of stoicism, which is to stand tall and stand strong and be that where's it gone? Well, we take it on the chin for our families. We're suppo- yeah. That's what we're supposed to do. Man, yeah. But what's happened is they've gone the other way with vulnerability. Like yes. girls are going, we need that soft, gentle, nurturing space, but you can still have masculine energy and still yeah. show elements of nurture yeah. um, and things like that. Like it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, and, but you know what? The other, it goes the other way too. If you've got guys who are naturally feminine, their energy to try and shift across the masculine, it's not, it's not natural. So it's also guys that sit in their feminine energy. Like there's nothing wrong with that. It's who you are. Like just be who you are. Yeah, but the thing is to do that, this is where for me, because I can sit in the feminine very easily. I don't mm-hmm. mind one bit, but the truth is I can also lead. And I think what the problem is, is exposure. Men need practical exposure to something. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they need to actually feel what it feels what it's like to be a man. Mm-hmm. And it, it is really sometimes a bit of a society issue that they don't just get the chance to. Mm. When do they go and do anything really, you know, when do you go test yourself? Oh. And that's what really men and men, are bit, you know, it doesn't matter whether we're 15 or, or 55, we're boys. And there is that part of us that needs to be tested. And, and once it does, it puffs its chest out a bit, but actually puffs its chest out with respect. So not with ego, but with a, I feel comfortable in my energy. I am a man. And yes, look, I can be in touch with my emotions. Mm-hmm. I can talk to my, my partner. I can, I can do, but I'm still a man. And the problem mm-hmm. is we see so full left or full right. We're either full feminine or full masculine. Hang on. Mm-hmm where's the balance? It's like politics. Everything's always full left or full right. Everything in, in, in society seems to have to be, I'm completely vegan or I eat meat, nothing else. We don't have a balance. 
Mm. I, I like that so much. You know, my, just speaking to you, like I love that Nelson Mandela book, man, because because um, what I do is I'll listen to so much human behaviour and it's like I need to break it up with some real world stuff and and so like a great autobiography and um, Nelson Mandela talked about, I can't remember what the the name of his tribe was, but he talked about at the age of seven or ten, what they do is they actually circumcise them yeah. as a test of like to become the man in front of the entire yeah. Uh, village and they can't scream. No. All right. So no obviously, noise. like, and I'm like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> this is, but you know what? Like, it was such a proud moment and he was tested and he stood up and like his friends and, and things like that. It, it, it's a, Danny Glover was the actual, um, the narrator in that book. Like, if anyone's ever, like, just to get an ex, to listen to that book for me was phenomenal. So, but yeah, the way it tests, like, and we, we, um, I tested myself in with, so much over the last 10 years. Um, and I, I think, but I, w- I was feeling on anger. Yeah. So this is the thing. Pain. It depends on the, mo- it's the motivation for it. Mm. See that, you know, the Africans will be motivated purely by like you've just talked about. I'm not saying that we're going to run around circusizing men by hand. I'll no, leave that no, to no, you, Trent. Was... <laughs> but, 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 um, but, but, um, but, but the idea of the motivation for that, because I can tell you that, you know, when I was in the bush, I would sometimes track elephants three days, 50 degree heat, hardly wow. any food, hardly any water. But it was motivation was exactly the same as what you just talked about. Not so much anger, but driven mm. purely by the need to succeed at all costs, even if it meant completely destroying my body. Uh, I resonate with that. I won America's Hardest 12 Hour four times and it was like, it was called the suck and it basically meant... Um, the uh, like conditions unimaginable and a credit to those who endure. So like, I know that, I know that yeah. you have many levels. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I know you have many levels of dig deep, dig deep. But, but the anyway, beauty, but the yep. beauty of that, what we've done though, Trent is the fact that it, it, we've got to try and find a, a way to turn that with the right motivation into a new generation of men, because what we did may have had a, a poor motivation at the time, but what we learned from it was exactly the same as what we needed to. And if we can, if we can impart that into a new generation of men mm-hmm. and somehow do that, you talk about the farm and I get excited because I think of ways that that could be done on a piece oh, of land. We're actually looking at it next weekend. So, and that's mm-hmm. why I like having you and the people that I've met in the community, like there's so much experience that we could basically create a massive, amazing community off the grid of growth minded people. And like, uh, we're so excited to solar vegetables, like grow everything. Like, uh, that's, it's just like creating something like that. Give like, uh, even since having the kids home the last nine weeks, even though I'm, it's been very frustrating just to watch them play, understand how they like to learn, and you smile then, um, uh, to be able to take them to the beach every day. I mean, I it hasn't been a bed of roses. Like, it's been, like, mess and chaos and carnage, and I, I've had to really try and adapt. But it's been uh, the, the, the ability to unschool children and to give them some real quality just life. Like, the fact they've watched our puppy, they've been intrinsically involved in helping me with the puppy. They'd be like, it doesn't seem like big things, but like these kids, when they leave school, they're going to be totally independent. When they get old enough, they're going to be able to look after themselves. And um, I, I don't think kids truly have a clue what to do when they, when they, that's why they're staying at home till they're 30. They got no fucking clue. 
No, and, they, and we basically, that we give them a set of goals that are just not realistic. You know, we don't, as you just said, we don't teach them to live. We teach mm-hmm. them to follow a career path mm-hmm. and a debt path. These are the things we'll teach you what to do. You're going to go and you're going to get a job and you're going to get a, you're going to get a credit card to build a credit rating. Then you're going to do this to get your first timeline. So mm-hmm. we basically train them to do what we're realizing in our forties and fifties was wrong yep. because we don't know any other way. And, and, um, it's one of the things I loved about Africa as well. You talk about growing vegetables, you know, that farm completely turned my world upside down and, and is in a roundabout way taking my kids from me, but there was nothing more rewarding than, than my days on that farm. Phenomenal. What I'd like you to do, mate, before we go, for anyone watching, you got a picture there you can show us of your kids, mate? We can try and, we can try and turn this around and we'll see if you can, you guys can see. Oh, wow. Oh, so cute. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I, yeah, I carry uh, quite a few photos of my kid, uh, my girls and um, uh, every single day, and I'm, I'm usually checking in with them. But you know what? Like, I, I really resonate with what you said. We're very synchronized when it's like I can create this, and that's what I say. Like, people go, how can you be apart from your kids? And I'm like, well, I could be in Melbourne and fucking be – doing something I'm good at that I don't love that was driving me fucking crazy and I was drinking every night and I could live like a bag of shit just to have my kids every second weekend or I could create some fucking legacy. And when they come back, no matter what stories they've been told, no matter what they've been, there's enough momentum and enough whatever it is to potentially go, you know what, look what dad's been able to do. And whether you think I'm fucking skipping out my responsibilities, I don't give a fuck. (laughs) But for me, like a, a lot of this alienation stuff is fucking bullshit. And that's another podcast we're going to do. It is. But, you know, look, my, my ex um, agreed that she would come. And now she's yeah, actually nice. not. She's not really. Yeah, but that's now she seems to have backflipped on that. So, Ooh, so gotcha. I mean, I'm in, in, in a situation that's sort of similar. And the truth is, is, does that make me want to go back? Initially, it did. It made me want to just go this way. I'll get on a boat. If I have to, I'll go back and I've got to be with my kids. Mm-hmm. But then I realized that there's... Um, there's a reason for me to be where I am now. And you know what? They're going to find out the truth at one point, one day, somewhere along the line, my ex is going to have to say, no, I chose to stay here mm-hmm. when all the money and all the facility and everything I offered is there for her to come. I'll live side by side with her if I have to. Mm-hmm. I'm not, there's nothing I, w- I won't do to make her life as comfortable as my children's. I'm not, there's no black. You imagine there would be, do you imagine if, um, man, I haven't always, thought this way because I was so fucking in victim and blame mode. But you imagine there would be no court system if everyone's like, you know what? Like if I have to, I'll live side by side and, and we'll write, like there would be no, ju- there would be no, um, ch- there wouldn't be child support. There wouldn't be all this wasted fucking resources. If we could choose the simple question, a wise man once said to me, do you want to be right? Or do you want to be happy? Mm. If we can stop wanting to be right, and we choose to be happy. That very simple sentence. We don't have to like our exes. We don't have to. And, and you know, I know that, especially from a female perspective, there's some fucking horrible men out there who've done some unforgivable things. 100%. But, but it does not escape from the fact that you share a child together. Mm-hmm. 100%. And we are going to continue to produce generations of poor out, men and women if we do not bridge this gap somehow and find this sense of family community where we find a way to show them forgiveness matters. <laughs> And you don't have to always be right. I think that uh, when we do our court, when we talk about values and 
we've been doing, I've been in a whole heap of study around axiology of late. Like I've just, I felt some resistance and I really, I knew where I had to go and what that was. Like I've been teaching so much for a year and a half where now I've gone into, I just signed up to a hundred hour course. I've just re-listened to all the Martini stuff just to like go deep inside of the study of values. And if the, so we teach values, as you know, and then the question is, would they be the same if you had six months to live? You know what I mean? Like a lot of people, not. Nah, <laughs> so not we, got, we got to go deeper. Like we yeah. got to go deeper. Okay, we do. Like if, if, if death was like, so what does death teach us? And it's like, what is, what is born out of, out of death? You know what I mean? Like, so uh, you, we've got to teach men to have that level of courage. And courage. you're right. And you courage. are right. You are fucking so right. Like as it be happy over being right. And like people go to me, but she's right. Or she's wrong. And I'm like, well, yeah, but where is she right? Yeah. And the truth is it gets to a point, you know, where I can, I can look and I can do this now from years of doing it wrong and, <laughs> and, and, and just know that there's that initial instinct in that humanness in, the, in us that, that wants to be competitive and all these other bits and pieces of, of the human that wants to win. But then that first sentence ends and I look and I look at the smile disappear from her face and I'm like, I'm not going to be responsible for that. Do mm. I want, do, do, what, what's, what's the priority? What do I win by being right? What do I get? What certificate of merit? Do I get a fucking bag of gold? Do I get, I get nothing. What Man, I do I, is I lose. I, <laughs> I lose everything by trying to be right. Yeah, I lose her smile. I lose her respect. Yep. You know, there's that old story about the, you know, the, the father gives his son a piece of wood and says, you know, when you get married, every time you have a fight and you say something bad to your wife, you have to put a nail in there. And then after five years of marriage, he says, you go pull all those nails out. And then how do you, how do you fill all those holes in? Mm. You don't want to have to say sorry constantly and fill those holes. Oh, you want to avoid, you want to avoid having to put the fucking nail in in the first place. That's uh, I'm visualizing that. And like, I, even with, um, even in my own relationship, like I'm, uh, she's the biggest thing, uh, relationships I love teaching about, but it's something that I've double, I, I'm, it's probably my intimate relationships and kids. Um, although they're a pretty high value, it's just, it's an area that I've always struggled with, I guess. If, I don't like these words struggle, but it's an area. Oh, I'm always, the same. I'm the yeah. same. I'm like, here with so, you there. And she's just as like, and I'm really starting, she goes, you're not committed. And I'm like, what the fuck do you mean? Like I'm providing, I'm protecting, I'm not asking for anything. And she's like, you're not fucking committed. Like at any moment, I feel like you can walk out. And I'm like, but I'm providing, but I'm protecting. Like I get really emotional. I become dumb in front of my unicorn. Like, I don't know if you've ever felt dumb, dumb. I do, well, you're just repeating a conversation that is exactly the same thing where it's, it's I look like you've always got a foot out the door. Same yeah, well, thing. I know so, exactly word for word for what you just said. I know. And so I've got to like, and now, uh, and we had a great, one of our first great conversations tonight for a while. And, and I'm like, fucking, I see, I just accepted and surrendered. And I said, fuck, there's so much more work I have to do. And she's right. She goes, you're not, she's, she will say, you're not ready for the love that I want to give you. And I'm like, Like, who says that? I'm like, I'm like, what do you mean? I'm ready. And then it's like, you become defensive and it's like, fuck. Like even just thinking now I get emotional, the level of gratitude, the fact that she's like, I don't know why, but I had this unconditional love for you that you do not see, feel, you resist. And I'm like, fuck. Like, it's just, you and I are so alike. It's a beautiful feeling though when you, when you have oh. the moment when you realise. And I mean, every day 
first thing on my gratitude is, is for Lucy for her patience. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, and we really do need to celebrate our partners and celebrate oh, the. Because uh, there's two the circles of friends I used to hang out with. It was always, and my me and my ex-wife were terrible for it. You'd be paying out on each other, yeah. and I fucking that's a real boundary for me. Like I do not, I do, and also friends that pay out on their partners consistently. No, I don't, don't fucking want. I don't want yeah. that shit. Like yeah. that's just low frequency stuff. So I think we can get stuck in this. Uh, we can get stuck in this fucking like perceived society, like idealism. And it's a fucking load of shit. Like it, it is a absolute load of shit. Like we, as men, especially if we're going to lead, we got to stand up and show the good, show the bad. Like when I, whenever I see a, a person who does coaching and speaking and whatever else, like, um, and if they're consistently putting out all the amazing things I've done, I'm like, you motherfuckers are hiding something. Like that's the beautiful thing about our community is like, we don't hide shit. Mm. In fact, we'll call you out on your bullshit. Mm. And uh, we all want, it's all fantasy shit. Like people are being sold dreams that are not theirs. Mm. So yeah. Oh man. Like Aaron, we got to, man, you're going to be a regular part of our show for as long as you like my brother. And um, I think uh, especially on Wednesday night, it's going to be a great one. And um, around uh, sexual connection for men in relationships, how to get back into it. How to like? I'm, we're just going to speak very openly. Like we've got four or five guys coming on to just a, a big open forum. Um, we've got Leon, we've got uh, Reese, we've got you, myself. I'm sure there'll be one or other two men that we'll, we'll want to um, bring in. But that's something I'm really excited about. I don't know if we'll let Mel in, but uh, we'll think about it. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's a safe space for her. Maybe actually, maybe it's good if we get a couple of girls on to really sort of throw in. Like throw in what they, well, the see, truth how is, they feel. The, the truth is, it's all good and well of us talking about how and how we can how create that connection. But you know, it's understanding and empathising with what a woman wants. Mm. Because we can come up with the best lines in the world. You know, we can come up with what should be done. But you know, women operate on a different frequency to us at the time, and that's that's where the problem lies. We think because we say something, it can be the wrong time that we say it, and we're like, well, why the fuck I said the right thing. Well, hang on, you, you know, it's still, and also there's that hidden, you're still trying to get laid behind what you say. And I did mention this to the boys. You've got to understand that a woman knows that shit, you know, right? If you think just because you've been coached oh, yes. to say you, this is the sentence you use and if you give her yeah. a hug, you don't realise she knows when that hug has got something behind it. Come on, guys. Fucking Kelly's there. You're Kelly's serious. Like me. <laughs> you're seriously, you know, and I, and I think oh, we are so, yeah. we're such simple creatures, men. We're so simple. Yeah. They've got us taped 100%. And until we're sincere about the connection, it's got to be sincere, that connection. Otherwise, they know. I think it's fine. I think it's like guys don't realize. I said this to a couple of guys. When I heard this first time, I was like, what the? But after, like, after you have sex with a woman, and something will repeat it, women will need to be connected with you for weeks afterwards, where guy, it's like a day or two. And I I told one of this to be really rigid dudes. I'm like, you don't get how hurt they are when you're not connected with them for weeks after when you have sex with them. He's like, what the? Like it's kind of went over his head and, and that was okay. He wasn't ready to hear it, but um, the, that's the sort of stuff that we're going to talk openly about. And, and especially in relationships, be- especially relationships, especially again, when there's family, when there's children involved, because it's not an easy one. And you watch how quickly men will start resenting. Uh, I talk, oh. I said, put this in a group and we know what resentment is, Trent, you and I know mm-hmm. better, you know, better than most. That word resentment is a silent killer because oh. it stays, stays up here. And when that Fucking doesn't come out, it destroys everything, everything. 
Yep, and there's two big, and you know, when they get to that level and the resent is destroyed, there's the actual killer, people like, people go on about depression, anxiety is not the fucking killer, man. Like, and all this other stuff, it's humiliation and shame. Yeah. They're the killers, humiliation and shame. And like, people want to talk about men's suicide and, and their, all this other stuff. Like, mm. like uh, there's, I don't believe there's one fix. I believe it's just, you know what, like the law, you, you being a conservationist, like the, the, the principles of nature, like, Nature goes, let's compete, but let's compete to build everyone up. It's not it's, survival. It's, it's let's compete to build everyone up. There's no point in, in conservation, for example. Oh, you can use this example as the rhino. Rhino is a good example. Everyone wants to save the rhino. Yeah, but by saving the fucking rhino, you destroy four other species because you don't want 400 rhino on a piece of land that used to only house seven or eight. Mm. It destroys a certain type of plant, which destroys the balance within the, the micro micro bacterial system within the mm -hmm. soil it changes the water because where they where they defecate breaks up the water, clean water for another species which kills a certain type of plant so you're exactly right there is supposed to be a balance and it's an ecosystem and i don't know what you call it with humans it's just community we've got it wrong at mm. the moment We're, it's broken yeah but you know what man that was such a cool chat like I've totally forgotten the fact that I fucking went for a tumble down the stairs and was doing the splits and fucking in front of five or six other people throwing me. Sm I was like, you know, those comedy movies where they slip and they throw their smoothie in the air or they're drinking. <laughs> Today, so uh, man, I've totally forgotten that I can hardly fucking walk. So I really, really, um, I tell you what, those that are watching and listening, I'd love for you to leave a comment and. Um, um, and you know, like where you're going to, and, and where you're going to find Aaron, um, obviously on Facebook, but in the team resilience group, um, we, this is where our coaches talk. So if you're loving the start of Aaron's story and like we, we went on a few tangents, I've got 12 great things written down here for the show notes, but yeah, man, like, um, you guys know that you're welcome to speak in team resilience group anytime you like, um, uh, over the next few months, you'll be starting to build out your own program and start to really lead in that space. And I'm sure you've got some, I know you've got an idea of a project that you want to build, which we're super excited about. Um, mate, I'm so grateful that you got on tonight. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Cause uh, you know, it's not something I would have done. I would have waited probably six months. And when you brought it up, I realized that that was like a carrot and that I had an opportunity to step into it. And it was just, it was so uncomfortable that's why I stepped into it so quickly. <laughs> Mate, I'm, I'm super, um, yeah, like it's like the Mutual Appreciation Society night. Like it's, uh, I've got a lot of gratitude for your story, mate. And um, I know there's some good comments um, there. Kelly's like, thanks for the amazing share. And you know what, like uh, that, I, I hope anyone that's listening to this, especially guys, uh, and if you are going through some hard times, like, the ability to make it about others. And I think that's the beauty of what you've been able to do, Aaron, is you really do make it about other people. Obviously when you're in a moment of suffering and struggle, it's uh, it becomes about self, but what you've been so selfless from your farming community to driving kids to uh, kids to um, clinics to, to uh, elephants. Like you, you talk about being selfish and I get it, but ultimately you are also very selfless. Like, animals uh community like you've been very selfless along the way and i do hope you acknowledge how selfless you have been um mate i really do and i hope you think of it like just how like yes you're selfish but you're also very selfless at the same time oh, i appreciate that and i appreciate everyone taking some time to listen to me it's um 
I hope this is just the beginning. It is. It is, man. Um, so, everyone, uh, thank you very much for jumping on. Um, this week, like I said, our next um, podcast we got is around uh, how to reconnect in your partnership, sexual connection in, in re- partnership and relationships. And we're going to be taking, talking about it from a man's perspective, but we'll also have Mel on board, and she'll she'll probably give us all a throat punch, but that's okay. So um, if you haven't gone and liked Trenshaw Master Coach, please do. Um, like I said, you catch Aaron at Team Resilience Group. Uh, we're just about to unleash our website, our rebrand. Um, our, our next round of coaches will be announced very soon. There is so much going on in the Team Resilience Group community. Thank you very much for watching. I can't believe I did this podcast all of my lonesome. What do you reckon? How did I do, Aaron? Did I go right? Very well. Yeah, very well. I'm actually surprised that it's the first one you've done alone. You, you pulled it off smooth. That's all right. Normally Mel uh, picks up on the pieces. Normally we've got a bull Arab in the background frigging talking away. <laughs> and the other day my speakers didn't work and like, it's just me and technology. So uh, I did it. Woo-hoo! So anyway, team, nice thank one. you very much for watching. This is the yes. anxiety hour over and out.